0: Hi, I'm Rachel.
1: And I'm Lori. And we're the Sex Positive Christian Feminists. Hello, and welcome to another morning of the Sex Positive Christian Feminists. We are so thrilled you are here joining us today. And today we wanted to dive into what sex drive is and how that relates into consent and how that's affected by asexuality and high sex drives in within the umbrella of how Christians talk about sex, particularly sex for women. And Rachel, as we were talking about this, you brought up how you run into this problem all the time in your coaching work.
0: What made me think about having this as a topic is that I see this in conversations in a whole bunch of online forums and Facebook groups in my direct messages on Instagram, all those sorts of things. The question keeps coming up for women of like, am I asexual? Do I have a low sex drive? Is it really just that I'm demisexual? Like what is going on? Because cultural society outside of um, conservative Christianity tells me I should have a sex drive that is X amount. And I don't have that. And there's a lot of misconceptions around what sex drive is, what it means to be turned on, all of those things. And so we felt like, Debunking some of those myths were really important, especially if you're coming from a Christian background. And even if you're a guy listening to this, it's important to know, especially if you're a man who wants to have sex with women, it's important to know how women's bodies sort of function and how our turn on works slightly differently. And also the messages that we were receiving growing up and how they've impacted us today. Yeah. Um, And I think a good place to start is actually to quickly define asexuality and demisexuality because there are a lot of myths about what those things are so a person who's is asexual is someone who does not experience sexual attraction which is different from physical attraction it's also different from having desire to have sex or mm-hmm. to masturbate so someone mm-hmm. who's asexual doesn't mean they don't have sex or they don't want to have sex it means that when they look at a person they don't feel sexual desire for them it doesn't mean that they can't look at like chris evans and be like he's gorgeous they might still be able to say that but it's from a physical attraction point they're not saying i want to have sex with chris evans because he is physically attractive if that makes sense Hmm. yes yes and i think as someone Absolutely. who is you know there's like a spectrum in the same way that there's a spectrum for gender there's a spectrum of of sexuality in that regard going from asexual to I think there's actually a fancier term than just sexual, but there's like a range in there. And among those things there's also demisexual gets which is a term that gets thrown around a lot in the post-evangelical communities i've been around as well and demisexual means that you only experience sexual desire for someone after you already have an emotional connection Mm -hmm. which i think is not uncommon i think that's actually a sign of being a well-integrated individual in some ways (laughs) that like you actually have to feel somewhat emotionally connected to someone before you start to just want to have sex with them and I think there may also be some nuance there around do you experience, do you fantasize about people that perhaps you don't have an emotional connection with? But in real life, you wouldn't want to have sex with someone without having an emotional connection to them. And there's Mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of nuance in those conversations that we are not gonna go into fully here today, but just so that you have an understanding as a listener of what the basic definitions are and knowing that you can go do more research if you are interested more in those things. But the question that I hear a lot is, I'm not wanting to have sex with my husband as much as I think I should.
2: Mm -hmm. Am
0: I asexual? Am I demisexual? Like, what's wrong with me? And there's, I think that's sort of a That's the wrong solution to the problem the problem isn't to just be like let me slap on a different label for myself the solution is let's explore what's really going on here and the other thing that i want to note before we actually dive into our own personal experiences with this sort of topic is there isn't an appropriate amount of sexual desire to have Mm. like there's no norm so far as that's concerned you can Mm -hmm. desire to have sex once every three years you can desire to have sex Three times a day and there's nothing wrong with that it's more of a matter of for you is that working for your relationships is that working for what you want for your life and does that feel satisfying to you so i think that's another thing that people really we want to make sure that people before they start asking these questions about do i have low sexual desire am i asexual am i demisexual it's more important to say am i happy with the amount of desire that i'm currently feeling yeah and if i am that's great And if you're not, looking into what's causing you to have less or more desire than you want. Today, we're going to talk about just simply what causes less desire, but more desire is also a concern that people have.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's also interesting because as we were talking about this, I was like, oh yeah, like this is something that comes up a lot in my programs as well, especially with women that we're talking about sexual ethics and how to rebuild our own sexual ethics. And what often comes up is this feeling of not knowing what our sex drive is because so often women, especially in Christian spaces are told that they don't have a sex drive or, and maybe not in that exact sentence, but it's almost like your job is to monitor the sex drive of a man, which then immediately cuts off the a woman's relationship with what she wants, what she doesn't want, what she feels, which I think actually creates I don't want to say it creates asexuality because that would be the incorrect term, but it it creates a disconnect where you don't even know how to get turned on or you're afraid of your turn on. So turn on becomes associated with sin. So even a woman who has a very large sex drive and a very strong sex drive doesn't know what to do and either feels that she is wrong or is somehow messing up the game or like, more sinful than other women or something like that, or a stronger temptress. And the problem with that then becomes is that we don't know how to handle our sex drive and we don't know what to do when it happens. And then we don't, which I know we're really gonna dive into more, but we don't even know what consent is then because we don't know how to handle our actual sexual desires.
0: Part of what you're talking about is also super important that we have to remember that our brains are the thing that controls our sex drive more than anything else.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: It's not like if you feel that it's sinful to have sex or you feel it's sinful to touch yourself or you feel it's sinful to get turned on period, that thought controls your body. And I Mm -hmm. think most Mm -hmm. people have experienced this where you're masturbating or you're having sex with someone else and your brain sort of, goes toward you know the homework assignment that you have to or a big work project or excuse the siren in the background or some major life event that's occurring that's really stressing you out and all of a sudden all the sensations that we're feeling good disappear
2: Mm -hmm. and that's because our Mm -hmm. brains
0: control our turn on so if there's something in your mind that's telling you this isn't good your turn-on's gonna be shut down. And even if you've changed the thought, like let's say you've gone through the deconstruction process and you're like, sex isn't sinful anymore. Those neurons still wire, you know, neurons that fire together wire together. So those neurons are still happening at the same time in your body. Even Mm -hmm. if you've already changed the thought consciously, that wiring is still there. So we actually have to do work to to dewire those two things so that turn-on can actually occur physiologically through your mind thinking that it's not sinful. Yeah, It's like two steps to the process.
1: Yeah, I've heard men tell stories about how they have sex and then they throw up afterwards because they feel so guilty for engaging in sexual activity that it's just completely associated with that. And these are men who even like did that on their wedding night. So it's not like they were, if if anyone's listening and and had that thought in their head, well, that's because they were sinning. like within a context of marriage, we unable to, um, we're unable to engage in sex in a way that was associated with being good because it had so long been associated with bad. Um, and the other thing that you were saying that kept coming up for me, and now I can't remember what it was. Shoot. I should have written it down. <laughs> um, well, it all makes me think about stories that I've, um, that I've experienced, not just with clients that I've worked with, but also in like my own experience, uh, with being a woman with a high sex drive and being told that my sex drive meant that I was boy crazy. And that was what was associated with it. So even though I was like, I really don't want to play basketball, but I want to stay in the gym and I want to watch the boys play basketball. They were like, Lori is so boy crazy. Lori just like, she's boy crazy. Nobody said like, and, and and it was associated with being bad. Like it was like, Lori's so boy crazy. Like she really should be focusing on God more or Lori's so boy crazy. She should be focusing on better things in life. And even in a feminist realm, like that is associated with something negative. Instead of someone being like, "Lori, you have a high sex drive. This is what you do with that," and like giving me guidance to know how to handle that, because what ended up ultimately happening, and what I've heard happen to many other people, is that then they start engaging with physical activity, and they're not prepared to want to have sex. And I remember the first time I kissed a boy, thinking in my head, like, "I'm not going to want. I'm." i'm not going to want to have sex with him i'm going to have to keep him from having sex with me and then immediately being like oh wait this is really fun like i don't know what to do with all this and yeah it becomes um it became a problem not just because uh like it would have led me to break my purity vows which i didn't want to do at the time but also it it would have led me to break break a purity vow that i had made that i wasn't ready to break even if it was consensual sex if that makes sense like having sex that i physically would have desired but didn't actually want to have and it wasn't really emotionally ready to have and how do we how are we able to teach uh, teach if we don't teach our daughters or our sons how to be how to engage with consent in a way that is sexually pleasurable but also what you are ready for at the time is also so vital for us to be able to, to have a conversation about. So yeah, so we don't end up then knowing what to do with our sex drive. And that's not to say that if you've had sex when you wanted it physically, but you're now like, oh, I really wasn't ready for that, that that was assault. It wasn't assault. Cause I think that's also the thing that gets really fuzzy in this conversation is is what is consent when you don't really want sex as a crime versus like not feeling like you're happy with it. And I think both are bad things. Like we we need to avoid both things. But one means someone should go to jail and the other one means we all need to reanalyze our relationship with ethics and sexuality. And I think both things need to be discussed, especially in light of the Me Too movement as well and what that means.
0: And it's frustrating because... The way that Christianity teaches women, Christianity generally, obviously Christianity is there are multiples, but um, the way that Christianity sort of teaches women is in such a way where we can't know what we really want.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: We're not right. being actually taught how to really integrate our sexuality and our and our minds and our souls and our like we're not being taught how to integrate that, so there's mm-hmm. no way to actually to actually consent in a way that that feels really great after the fact as much as it does in the moment Mm -hmm. and that i think is actually something that we don't teach secularly either no (laughs) but we certainly are not even mildly encouraging that in a lot of christian environments especially when we discourage female masturbation because that is the way that you learn like what turn on actually feels like for you, what you like, what you don't like, how you can feel more confident in communicating that to someone else. All those things are super important skills, and they're skills that you have to practice and build in order to be able to to experience. Right, yeah. And I mean, I think that,
1: so that's, I mean, that's something that as a culture, we don't teach girls to, to masturbate. And I think that when I was growing up, I remember constantly being told, and I know I'm not alone with this in the evangelical world. The evangelical world teaches that the world, the world outside of the church says that girls can have sex whenever they want. They tell girls that they can masturbate. They tell girls that they can dress like quote unquote, and if you can't see me, I'm putting my, hair, my fingers in air quotes, <laughs> sluts. And <laughs> Instead of teaching our our girls that, well, well, so what I want to say is that creates a dichotomy where it says inside Christianity, we respect women and women know how to have safe sex. Women know how to have sex in a healthy way and outside in the rest of the world, it's scary and dangerous and women are not being respected. And so I think what ends up happening when we start going through a deconstruction process is we start thinking, we flip the dichotomy and we think that healthy sex happens outside because we know what we just experienced wasn't healthy. So then we think that what's happening outside of the church is healthy, and the problem is is it's also still not healthy. There's still so many problems going on outside of it. And so yes, women are being objectified in the church through modesty culture and they're being objectified outside of the church on the magazine covers. Like both are happening. Women are being told that their sexuality is for men inside the church and they're being told that it's for men outside of the church. Only one is go have lots of sex to keep your boyfriend or a woman who's really sexy and hot and always turned on is what a man wants. And the other one is a woman who's always sexy and hot in the confines of her married married bedroom that she shares with her husband is everything a husband wants. And a woman who doesn't even know what sex is pre-marriage is exactly what a man wants. And so both are
0: severely messed up. And one of the things that you said that is really striking to me is just the concept of ultimately in both of those spaces, men are ruling over women's bodies. And I I was noticing this um, the other day when I was sort of just reflecting on what do I fantasize about when I am self-pleasuring? And mostly Mm -hmm. what I fantasize about is experiences that I've had with men. And so even mm. in this space where I'm doing this really for me, it's not for anybody else. It's my own private space. There's nobody else around. It's just me. There's still a way in which men are ruling that space because mm. it's still focused on, on on what pleasure they offered me in the past, which I think is a really fascinating thing to just reflect on.
1: Yeah. And I, well, I think that's also really interesting because on the flip side, which is interesting, is I remember a phase or a movement going on at the beginning of college, and I think it's still kind of happening in evangelical circles, so this is maybe around like 2005, 2006, where there was an idea that you can masturbate so long as you're not thinking about another person and you're not looking at pornography, which I also think is interesting because my experience and what i've observed happening is that actually still reinforces that sex with another person is bad that it still reinforces so it's almost like it's again like this flip that happens because to be able to remember my own sexual experiences and to think about a man during sex was a hurdle that i had to actually get over and i know i know i'm not alone in that that other people were like once i start thinking about another person then i'm lusting after them and it's like no, wanting to have sex with someone isn't equal to lust. Objectifying someone is lust. And so, like, we end up having this this broken understanding of what is a healthy, good way to be turned on by another person because turn on is sin. Just immediately, we're still untangling that web.
0: And again, it goes back to the idea of if it's in your mind, your body is going to respond to it. So mm-hmm. that... Mm-hmm experience is going to be sort of mired with a negative connotation after the fact potentially because yeah. of the way in which you've been socialized to and conditioned to believe that if I think about someone while I'm masturbating, I'm sinning against them right and as a result sinning against myself yeah and that's gonna cause you to feel shittier about it which, sort of brings us to this conversation that we wanted to have around consent mm-hmm. and just how consent is obviously very important, but when you're coming from a place of being raised in an environment where especially as a woman, you weren't given permission to really feel turned on. Mm-hmm. It can be very challenging in the moment when you are let's making out with some let's say making out with someone to figure out exactly how far you want to go and whether or not you want to go that place anyway. And then what that can cause is that like you're a little bit confused at the beginning and then when you look back on the experience you're still feeling confused and conflicted and that can go back to that space of of really feeling this this sense of wait was that was that bad did i not fully consent when i was doing that should i should i have spoken up faster should there should i have done something differently and that sort of you know guilt shame spiral starts to happen and that's really not good and a lot of times mm-hmm. what people do are sometimes what people do is that guilt shame spiral can feel so strong that you end up pushing it onto other people. And that's where we've got some problematic stuff happening that is tangential to me too, but is ultimately very different in it's actually lived experience.
1: Right. Right. Exactly. And it, cause I think that when we don't know if we're turned on, we don't know if we're consenting. And I think this ties back to the emphatic yes, which I think we, um, I'm stealing that from a blog. And I don't remember where I read that, but I remember this phrase and I was like, yes, we have to tap into our emphatic yes, not just an absence of a no, not just a okay, sure, but the emphatic yes that is saying, I absolutely want to engage in sex with this person. But that's something that we have to figure out how to engage with before we are going back to someone's house after a date. It's something that we have to have engaged with and be dissecting and digesting. I mean, in my ideal world with our daughters, when they first start developing their sex drive and with our sons, when they first start developing their sex drive, like that's when we start teaching about the emphatic yes. And that's something to me that we know about if we know our bodies, because the best question I've ever heard the best phrase of questions I'm taking from a book called Girls and Sex, which I believe is from a woman, by a woman named Susie Orenstein or Peggy Orenstein. And now I can't remember, but.
0: We'll double check it and make sure we have a link to a yes. local bookstore.
1: <laughs> a local bookstore. In the show notes. <laughs> but we, um, but she talks about how you need, to, that she's going to, she teaches her daughter or will teach her daughter that um, before she has sex, do you know how to give yourself an orgasm? Do you feel comfortable explaining it to your potential partner? And if not, what do you hope to gain from this experience? Because then suddenly, the bar is set so much higher that it's not about—it's not just simply about uh, pleasuring a man, but it then becomes about a co-pleasuring experience. And if the answer is no, I don't know how to give myself an orgasm, and no, I don't feel comfortable explaining that to my partner. Um, If it's no to either of those, I'm not saying. I definitely think if you don't feel comfortable explaining how to have an orgasm with someone, I think you should reconsider having sex. But I do think that if you haven't yet had an orgasm, that doesn't mean that you can't have sex yet. But it does mean that like, you know what you're about to engage in, in a way that is you're aware of what you want out of the situation and what your bar is and what you expect to come from that other person as well.
0: 100%. And I say that to people all the time when they ask me, you know, if they have teenage kids or something and they're like, you know, what do I say about sex before marriage? And my thoughts are always you shouldn't be doing something that you can't talk about. And so if you can't fully talk about the ramifications of your actions, also the potential outcomes of it, right? If you can't talk about STIs, if you can't talk about potential pregnancy, if you can't talk about the things that you're talking about, which is like mutual pleasure, mm-hmm. you shouldn't be doing the thing. It's interesting that you mentioned orgasm though, because I have a very specific feeling about orgasm in part mm-hmm. because of the fact that I have had a really hard time figuring mm-hmm. out how to experience my own orgasm. That is something that has been a huge challenge for me that many of my lovers also know has mm. been a huge challenge for me. And it's been a shared experience of figuring out what works and what doesn't work and when things work and when things don't and yeah, all that kind of thing. And so I have a really strong feeling of like, sex isn't about orgasm. Yes. And, it, and I think that's really important for people to also understand is that it's not about orgasm, mutual pleasure 100%, but. And feeling connected and, and and emotionally connected and spiritually connected potentially all about that and that doesn't have, mean that you have to do this in a long-term relationship or anything like that i'm i'm i've sure. had some beautiful spiritual experiences that were also one or two night experiences um yeah but the idea that orgasm isn't the center of of sexual pleasure sexual pleasure is a much broader thing and orgasm is one part of that which can be right. particularly pleasurable but does not it need not be the end-all be-all of either a men's a man's sexual experience or a woman's sexual experience and men really don't get that most of the no. time because <laughs> they oh are gosh. like no, no no but the point of sex is ejaculation and then you know but there's a refractory period and sex is over <laughs> yes
1: and that oh my gosh that goes into like the timeline of sex and that we believe that it ends after a man orgasms and all that
0: stuff i would really want to divorce the idea of of orgasm being a key piece of either sexual pleasure or the sexual experience i think it can be very um i know that if if i were someone if i had still had a lot of trouble experiencing orgasm and i heard that i would feel really shitty about myself <laughs> and i definitely don't want anyone to feel shitty about themselves for not being able to experience orgasm. It can be challenging, pleasure is hard. Yeah. Um, we think pleasure should be easy, but pleasure is hard and so or can be difficult and challenging. And so if you are one of those people who are pre-orgasmic, it's not going to be your state forever and we can talk about it and and we'll get you there. But <laughs> yeah. No, and that's
1: why i also emphasize that like if you haven't had an orgasm that doesn't mean you can't have sex. But if you don't feel comfortable talking about, like exploring your own pleasure and talking to your partner and saying things like, this actually doesn't feel comfortable. Or like, can we change positions or anything like that? Then like, that's a step you I think is healthy to take before before engaging with sex with them, because then that creates a problem where there isn't an emphatic yes there's like kind of no's all throughout the process or kind of a huge no. Throughout there's the whole something
0: process. else that's coming up as you're talking about this, where it's sort of the chicken or the egg problem, mm-hmm. where in order to know that you're an emphatic yes, you have to have sort of had at least some kinds of experiences of sexuality with another person. And mm. you know, I was talking about this with a client the other day when we were speaking about consent. And specifically the analogy I used is if you go on a roller coaster and I'm someone who loves roller coasters. My family was really into amusement parks when I was growing up. So the first time, and I'm the youngest in my family. So the first time I was going on my very first roller coaster and it was really exciting, but I was also super terrified. Yeah. And I had these loving people around me, my parents and my siblings saying, this is going to be so much fun. You're going to love it. And I still felt really scared Yeah. And really, really terrified of it. And I go on the roller coaster, I get off of it and I'm like, I am not so sure how I feel about this, (laughs) like, I don't know if I liked it. I know I was supposed to like it. I know that there were parts of it that were fun, but there were parts of it that were really terrifying and were really scary and were maybe uncomfortable. And I'm not really sure if I like it. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it can take several tries of different roller coasters or trying the same roller coaster multiple times so you actually know what's going to happen to mm-hmm. get to the point where you can be like this is fun. I want to go on that roller coaster. Yeah. And then as you do it more and more you're like I don't want to go on that one that's easy. I want to go on the hard one that has the corkscrews and the you know whatever else they're they're called. And I think that we can compare that to sex because yeah. if you don't have the experience of having sex or having sexual pleasure given to you or you giving sexual pleasure to another person, it's going to be really hard to to calibrate within yourself, do I want this today? And what do I want today? Unless you have some level of experience with it. And so there is that idea of, yes, we need the emphatic yes, 100%, but when you're first starting out, that emphatic yes cannot be quite as emphatic as it will be after you have more experience.
1: But I also don't think an emphatic yes is always yes i'm so freaking horny right now like i need to have sex right now (laughs) because the first time i had sex it wasn't that way and um but i think it is um but i think it is yes i absolutely want to do this because the moment like following your metaphor like when you get in the roller coaster like it doesn't sound to me like you were being forced to get in the roller coaster or you were being manipulated to go into the roller coaster or anything like that. Like, you were like, okay, I am going to do this. And that for me is an emphatic, or maybe a better word than emphatic is a clear yes, like an absolute yeah. yes. Um, because I think it's in terms of like what we, what I wish we were informing our daughters and our sons about when it comes to sex is that it is messy. It isn't going to be like it's in the movie where it's gonna be like you're gonna look them in the eyes and then like five seconds later, you're gonna be ripping each other's clothes off in the bedroom. It is gonna sometimes be slow and scary and uncomfortable and odd and weird. But when you want to stop, you get to say stop. Let's, and, and you can also say like, hey, I, love, I don't really feel comfortable with this right now but then like five minutes later be like, actually I feel comfortable with this. And actually, no, actually I thought I felt comfortable with that, but I don't anymore. And that is still okay. That is also still healthy, good sexual exploration and whatever ends up happening is good. But when we don't, when we associate any type of interest in sexual activity with sin, what we then end up doing is not feeling like we can say no because we're sinning and not feeling like we can say yes because that would also be sinning so we like you said like we use our brain to like make it neutral and actually what i think causes for a lot of women is a disassociation with their body and there's becomes these messages that even say like (laughs) there's a book so when i was to doing my thesis which we talked about before i read tons of books for christian women about marriage and what they're supposed to do and one of the books was like well like A Q&A on sex and they're like well what do i do while he's inside of me like what do i do and they were like well you can think about how much you love him and maybe you could kiss him or um tell him you love him and maybe he'll tell you he loves you and i was like sounds like the
0: worst <laughs> oh my gosh that's like like, um oh man the first thought i have is like we're overthinking this process (laughs) we are overthinking this process um oh man and by the time he's inside of you you'll know what you're doing (laughs) hopefully Um, if it's a positive sexual experience you'll know and you'll have an idea of what you'd like to be doing in that moment you don't have to worry about choreographing it beforehand.
1: Yeah, that's true as well. And like what comes to mind when I hear it is, is that the understanding of her wanting something else besides the emotional experience from sex was absent because the physical desire was cut out of that advice completely and entirely because she was going to feel love and she was going to want to kiss him but she wasn't there was the idea of her actually being turned on was like out of the question that's not are actually a
0: desiring the sensation of him inside her
1: exactly that's not, <laughs> not even no. a welcome desire it just makes me think about concepts around like oral sex and all the other d- other fun things that you can do and and thinking about how we associate some of our own pleasure with selfishness when it comes into the um especially purity culture conversations that like to give or to receive oral sex is selfish because they're not receiving pleasure um really has always boggled my mind um because if you don't enjoy want to give someone oral sex then by all means don't but if but there's also like joy in pleasuring another person. So when we say, when you want, when you're receiving pleasure, you're being selfish, has also created so many experiences that.
0: And part of it also means that if some, if you are giving pleasure to someone, that that person is being selfish.
2: Mm -hmm. Right. And I
0: think that's something that when I talk to women about specific, there's so many women who are like, I know my husband or my partner wants me to go down on him, but. I don't wanna go down on him. Mm -hmm. And the I don't want to is usually, there's like a part of them that feels grossed out by it or doesn't want to do it, but then there's a part of them that's like, no, but I like, I know that he enjoys it and I wanna do it, but if I half don't want to because I feel a little grossed out or whatever, does that really mean that I'm not consenting to it? That's like a whole other spiral of conversation and thought. Yeah is based on this idea i think it's it's rooted in this idea of like if you're just receiving pleasure or the other person is just receiving pleasure one of you is being selfish and that yes. and selfishness is is evil and bad and sinful and that's not how that works in those settings you can lovingly gift someone oral sex yes and in that gifting of something in the same way that you know i enjoy giving gifts to people mm-hmm. right that's that's somebody that's a love language is giving gifts and while I don't think we should be treating sex as a gift Mm -hmm. (laughs) in that regard like as a it's Valentine's Day we should have sex like that's not how that should work but there is a way in which at least to like prime the pump to get you used to giving oral sex to somebody I think it can be helpful to have the mindset of I'm giving this person a gift the same way that like My husband brings me coffee in the morning sometimes when he wakes up before me. And that's amazing to have coffee delivered to me bedside. Yeah. That's a gift.
1: I also want to pepper on that, too, is the other layer that immediately came to mind with a woman who doesn't want to give her partner oral sex is the grossed out, the feeling like he might be selfish, but also feeling like you're selfish for not wanting to give him oral sex because like so much also of purity culture is your body and your clitoris and your orgasm and your pleasure i think i might have already said pleasure isn't for you it exists for him your turn on is a gift to your partner so if you don't want to give him oral sex you're a bad wife and if you're engaging in sex outside of marriage that Pattern. Whether in your deconstruction process, that pattern still comes up. It's like, well, he's not going to want to date me if I don't give him oral sex, or he's not going to want to. Uh, he's going to break up with me if I don't give him oral sex.
0: And, He'll cheat on me. He'll do whatever.
1: Yeah, and I mean that. That like I mean like that's just like a whole other field of of conversations and information because, yeah that is not, that should never be tied to love and that should never be tied to mutual care for one another, ever, ever, so. Yeah,
0: the idea of doing a particular sexual act should not be linked with, you would do this if you loved me.
1: <laughs> right, or if you're a good wife or anything
0: like that. Yeah. Um, I just want to say this has been such a fun conversation. It has been. <laughs> I know we're not quite done, but it's been fun, even though it's a little rambling. And for those listening, I'm sorry that's a little rambling, but I think hopefully it- you've gotten something out of the fact that maybe you just feel a little freer because we've talked about all this stuff freely. Um, I just want to make a quick comment about responsive and spontaneous desire because we said that yes. we wanted to talk about it, and I know that it's really important within this context, especially for women. Not that men can't experience responsive desire, also, but it's important. So spontaneous desire. These are two different kinds of turn on, essentially. And spontaneous desire is where you feel aroused, you feel turned on first, and then you decide that you're going to go seek out sex. Mm
2: -hmm. So
0: arousal leads to desire for sex. Mm -hmm. This is what you see in movies, right? The whole idea of like, I want you so badly, I'm ripping off your clothing in the hallway before we get to the bed, and we end up having sex on the couch because we can't even make it to the bed, you know, that sort of Mm -hmm. thing. That is, you're feeling aroused, and then you desire sex. And most of us have an implicit understanding that that's what sexual desire is always, Mm -hmm. and therefore that's how we should be experiencing our sexual desire. That is a myth. There's another form of sexual desire which is far more common in women than men, and therefore it doesn't get represented in the media as regularly, Mm -hmm. and that is responsive desire. That's where you actually have to start, I totally flipped these, you actually have to start to feel aroused before you desire sex. So the one, I'll just explain it and we'll figure it out later. But basically what it is, is you actually have to start doing something that is sexual and then juices will start flowing. Mm. Mm -hmm. So you do the sexual act and then you feel turned on by it. And then you want more rather Mm -hmm. than you want the sexual act and then you do it
2: and -hmm. you feel turned on. Yeah.
0: Um, So it's sort of flip-flopped. And I think for a lot of women that, creates a tension because we've been told you want an emphatic yes yeah from the start which in our minds means you have to be so wet and hot for this person that there's no way you can say no right when that's right. not going to happen for most women most women you're not gonna get there until you start doing the thing and then yeah. once you make out with him for and I'm using gendered language right now mostly because we're talking about mostly heterosexual couples this is a problem that shows up in I'm sure that it exists in in other configurations of gender and relationship but generally speaking this is a pretty consistent cis man cis woman problem Problem, yeah or concern um but the idea that you have to give your partner a chance of getting you to the point of wanting sex before you say i'm i just don't want it tonight and i i know personally because i experience desire like this most of the time I could say no 99% of the day is that Dave wants sex. And I wouldn't care. Like it wouldn't be a big deal to me. Mm-hmm. But that's not really good for our relationship, and I know that and I know about myself that I'm more of a responsive desire person, so I've got to give him a chance first and then decide after the fact, do I want this or not? Yeah. And that I- means that like you can have a little conversation with your partner beforehand being like we're going to make out for i always do it by songs so like three songs on this playlist or something and then we'll see how we feel knowing that at the end of those three songs if you opt for this is a i only want to make out night you get to stay right there or i want to go all the way tonight you get to go all the way and it is still choice the whole way through but giving yourself a little window of opportunity to potentially get turned on so that you desire sex.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because even that is also very rarely discussed when we teach in Christian spaces about sex because of that relationship between selfishness, that it's like, there's an idea that if your husband wants to have sex, you need to have sex with him because that's what a good wife does. And that's great. And that's good if, if we're doing kind things for our partner. But then also, I remember saying this, uh, I was married at the time and somebody said this to me, and I was like, if I'm not interested in having sex, my husband will kiss me on the neck. He will do things to make me feel turned on or to contribute to the turn on experience so that then I can become engaged with it so that I don't have to like pull up this desire for sex deep inside my like soul and like eek the faucet on and look for drips and force it out of myself. But it's a, it's a partnered experience and that it's not something that men can be like, yo, you owe me sex because I'm, it's been, it's been two weeks, chop, chop, but it's so much more like let's like what you just described was like a let's get let's get turned on together let's make this like a co-experience which makes it mutual which makes it life-giving which makes it bonding between two people together which makes it a soul-giving experience as well as a physically
0: pleasurable experience
1: which is so important totally
0: yeah um i think now we're at the point where We've given you all the information we wanted to give, at least on my end, I feel like I've offered you all the stories I want to offer, but a couple of quick tips and ideas. If you are somebody who experiences like less turn on, less desire than you want to, or you're still in the process of, of trying to sort through your own mm-hmm, physical yeah. sensations, noticing when you're turned on and not, um, Laurie and I have a couple of ideas about what we want to, how we want to just offer you some concepts and thoughts about how you can help grow your consciousness around your turn on and also just grow in your turn on generally.
1: Yeah. I mean, for me, I I think about pleasure and the erotic and how, because we've sequestered pleasure to the bedroom and we don't necessarily know what to do with pleasure, it kind of creates a very unpleasurable, non-erotic bedroom experience. And how do we tap first into pleasure and then are able to experience that turn on and that pleasure in the bedroom then as well. And so for me, it comes down to like the very simple things and finding turn on outside of the bedroom first and then being able to understand what that turn on means when we move into a bedroom space. So I'll I'll give an example of my coffee right here is, for those who are watching on youtube you'll be able to see me doing this but i'll try to explain what i'm doing as much as i can for those in the podcast or you can go ahead and google us on the podcast if you want to see on youtube if you want to see what i'm doing actually so instead of like oftentimes we just drink our coffee keep going and we continue checking our emails or focusing on like what just happened in politics or what's on the news or making sure our kids brush our teeth or all the different things that we do um, (laughs) while we're drinking our morning coffee. Instead, take a moment to fully experience your coffee entirely. And so slowly sip it, move your tongue around in your mouth, Taste the bitterness and like that little bit of a combination of sweetness and really savor how amazing that tastes and the warmth of it going down your chest and the feeling of, for me, it like brings out this like bright awakening around me and a calmness centers into my body. And then take another sip and feel the sensations and everything that's happening around you and tap in to the full experience of coffee. And from a theological perspective, that's a prayer. That's a prayer of deep gratitude. It is an erotic experience of prayer. And when we are able to practice those moments throughout our day, of savoring the physical sensations around us, then when you engage in your sexual experiences, that's when you can start to feel his hand go against your arm and feel the full sensation of what that feels like. How does it make your arm feel? How does it make your spine feel? How does it make your stomach feel? And all the different pleasures that become intertwined with just a simple stroke of your partner's hand. That's my advice.
0: That sounds great. I mean, my advice would be very similar. I would say do something along those same lines, but grow to the point where it feels comfortable to touch yourself Mm. in a way that is that mindful. Yes. I think it can be a great place to start with the the coffee or taking a bath or using a special soap when you take a shower or, you know, things like that, that we feel really more comfortable and confident in doing because we're already doing those things generally speaking Mm -hmm. and then move it more and more into the realm of sexual experience and sexual pleasure. And the more that we can experience that same level of consciousness that same level of mindfulness when we are experiencing our own sexual desires and sexual sensations, the more that you're going to be able to know, oh, okay, I'm really feeling into this or I'm not.
2: Mm -hmm. And knowing Mm -hmm. that
0: you can be feeling into an experience on a lot of different levels, on a mental level, on an emotional level, on a spiritual level, on a physical level, on whatever level, like all those things can be happening. And your consent can come from any of those places. It doesn't have to come necessarily from like all of them simultaneously, right? Like you can start with one and then another one can come in and then another one and then another one.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I, cause I think it grows. Cause until I was able to find that even being turned on with coffee was allowed, then I was able to know that all the other pleasures in the world were allowed. And that I think is the gift of the erotic, um, which is magic, really. I am thrilled that you all joined us today. Thank you so much. And we will see you next Tuesday morning for another conversation with a sex-positive Christian feminist.